This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach entrepreneurship innovation as well as product design. I co-host Launchpad with Rob Connybeer. Rob is Managing Director of Shasta Ventures, a leading Silicon Valley venture capital firm. And Rob and I switch off hosting duties, mostly broadcasting from the Wharton School campus in San Francisco. The goal of Launchpad is to increase your chances of success as an entrepreneur. And Rob and I believe that while there are clearly some things that are risky and uncertain about launching a new business, and you can't eliminate all of the 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 uncertainties, we do believe that there are things you can do to increase your chances of success. And so what we try to do is identify tools, principles, methods, and approaches that have proven successful for other entrepreneurs in the hopes that they can be helpful to you. Our our audience is really three groups of people. Some of you are yourselves entrepreneurs. We really hope to speak very directly to the challenges you're facing. Some of you are thinking you might want to be entrepreneurs, and we really hope to give you a clear window into the world of entrepreneurship. And some of you are just interested in cool stuff out there in the world of business, and we hope to speak to you as well. But to start off the show, I'm joined on the line by Jeff Wilson, who's the founder of Casita. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Hey, good to be here. All right, first things first, I want to spell Casita because it's a. I love the name and I love that you own your own domain, but it's got one little trick, which is Casita is spelled with a K. So it's K-A-S-I-T-A dot com, just Casita dot com. So if you're someplace safe at a web browser, you can check out Casita and there's some nice visuals on the website. Jeff, give us the elevator pitch for Casita. Well, so, you know, when you look at the largest industries in the world, uh, perhaps the last one and the largest one to be disrupted uh, is uh, housing and construction around housing. And what we did with Casita is from the very beginning, um, we integrated in software and hardware into making the first sort of home as a product. There aren't any sort of home, if you think about global brands, there aren't any really global brands out there um, in housing. And we're trying to do all the other things that you do with a product to really build something, um, you know, for a new way of living. So, you know, Jeff, I teach product design, and one of the things that I do when talking about product design as distinct for other kinds of design is to say that product design is about designing something you're going to make more than one of, you're going to make a few of. So is that the idea behind Casita, that you're going to develop and make some investments in designing something that you're then going to be able to produce repeatedly? 
That's right, and it goes back to the very early DNA of the company uh, when I founded Casita back in uh, the middle of 2015. Everybody was saying, hey, you should go out and find some architects and some civil engineers to help you put together this man mass manufactured uh, home. And I said, you know what, I'm, I'm instead going to go find an industrial designer a product designer that knows really nothing about housing and ask that person to essentially make me like an iPhone that I could live in, mm. something that's an integrated piece of hardware and software. As far as I know, it's the only home ever designed in SolidWorks, which is something typically not used right in architecture. It's used in product design. Um, we have a full operating system in this thing, and it is made for the long-term uh, to be mass manufactured a lot more like a Tesla than any sort of modular uh, home out there. Super cool, and I love this stuff. But Jeff, maybe you can help our listeners visualize your first product. So you have a grand vision, but let's start with the product you're making today. Just describe it for us. Right, so it's a 352 square foot uh, micro unit that is very zen, uh, everything is very minimal in it. Uh, things tuck away that you don't use all day long like the Casper queen size mattress we have in it. Um, and it's a fully delivered unit. So it can drop in your backyard with the queen size bed, the washer dryer, the stove, um, the closets, the whole kitchen sink, uh, literally. So when, when you think about a drag and drop uh, housing product that's really uh, what we've built they can go in your backyard um, they can uh, well long term we'd like to stack these but right now it's almost a, a, a distributed backyard sort of housing unit and I guess in terms of of the visual it's a it's a prismatic object it looks like a, a long block uh, so maybe you could just tell us the dimensions. You told us the square footage, but what are the dimensions of the object itself? Yeah, so they're almost 40 feet long. Mm -hmm. They're a little over 12 feet high, and they are around 10, 10 and a half feet wide. Yeah. Um, and so the way we came to those dimensions is we said, all right, let's design, since we're designing this for mass manufacturability and distribution, let's design the tallest, widest, and longest unit that we can legally put on a truck and ship anywhere in the United States. That is how we came up with that 352 square feet. It wasn't just sort of something that we pulled out of the ether. Yeah. Yeah. We backed into it. Yeah. And and so if you I, I know you're careful to say it isn't a shipping container, but, it, you know, vaguely it's the length of a shipping container. So the length of a container you would see on a rail car or the back of a truck, mm -hmm. but a little bit quite a bit taller, 50 percent taller and 20 percent wider, 25 percent wider than a shipping container, just to give people a sense of what the object is. And I've all, and it also has that kind of clean prismatic form that doesn't have a pitched roof or anything like that. It's it looks like a nicely engineered block that contains a, right. a small house. Yeah. And so they are, you know, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, so no. you touched on a few things. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, our initial product design deck 
some of these sort of explorations of this aren't things that you typically would see in a health, you know, an architect's deck. There were Leica cameras in there. We wanted to sort of imitate the solid feel of that. And one of the slides actually, <laughs> our designer had uh, a bunch of, well, rounded rectangles um, on a slide of which, you know, most of the consumer devices these days seem to have rounded rectangles on them. I'm looking at five or six of them here in our conference room, and we said we wanted to rise above the rest. So you're not going to find uh, any rounded rectangles uh, in either the exterior or interior of the design. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a little uh, edgier, as it were. It's, it does have edges, although certainly the so the round yeah. the the rounded image is, I think, you know, evokes iPhone for sure. But but it's a very it's beautiful. It's a clean, nice object. I love that it was made in in SolidWorks. And then just one last thing to calibrate our listeners. I I pay attention to things like square footage, and and that's a three hundred fifty two is a is a is a nicely sized hotel room so that would be like a you know a good sized hotel room at at the four seasons would be something like 300 to 400 square feet so a decent size living space but you do have to play a lot of tricks to make to get everything you want in that house it does include everything right it includes a kitchen and a bathroom correct that's right. You've got a full bathroom. You've got a kitchen. You have a washer dryer. You have a queen size bed. Um, you have plenty of space to set up uh, an additional table. You've got probably eight linear feet uh, for hanging clothes. Um, you, you've really got everything you need to sort of live a light lifestyle. Um, you know, we obviously weren't designing something for somebody that just found themselves on the set of hoarders, uh, sort of move out of their home and get everything in. We're more designing around a psychographic of folks that, you know, want to live a bit of a lighter life, own more of their stuff rather than, you know, having their stuff own them. Yeah. All right. Well, a question after seeing this beautiful home Probably the third or fourth question is, what am, what do I pay? So tell us what the price tag is. So it's $149,000, gets you the whole box and everything in it. Um, it's permitted, and we've gone through a long and tedious process of getting this pre-permitted in several states already. California is one of them. So, you know, you don't go through the full process of having the drywall inspected and having the city come out and look at the electrical and the plumbing and all of these and then the uh, fire suppression system. All that's done inside the factory. So literally you just pour a pad or piers, you deliver it to your site, set it down and plug it in. Yeah. So you alluded, you said in in passing that you could plop it in your backyard and that made me wonder if you could t about the use cases if i have a backyard i already have a house so why do i need a new house so maybe talk about the use cases and then more specifically could i plop it on a pl plot of land in california and have it be my primary residence yeah so the the second question i'll answer first yes okay. Uh, it is classified not as a manufactured home, but as a modular single-family home. You can get a Fannie Mae loan on these things. 
Wow. Um, so if you wanted to just plop it down on a uh, piece of land. But, you know, in the backyard space, uh, you know, California and a lot of the other places that have severe housing shortages and, um, you know, out of control uh, affordability crises have begun to pass laws on something called an ADU or an accessory mm. dwelling unit. So the state assembly actually in California has passed a law, Senate Bill 1069 there, that says if you apply for a backyard unit, uh, that permit has to be issued, and I believe it's 120 days now. Um, actually, the mayor of San Francisco just came in uh, and, and, and said, you know what, we're just going to automatically approve all the ADU pro um, uh, permits that are in process right now. So there's a lot of legislative stuff that makes it a lot easier to drop one of these in your backyard. And as far as use cases, you know, it can be anything from a multi-generational, if you wanted to have multi-generational might include uh, your mother or grandmother. I guess you could also uh, classify millennials that are wanting to, you know, maybe move back into the house, but you don't want them in the house. Yeah. You could use it as an Airbnb or some other type of short-term rental. Um, or as another little office uh, there in your backyard. And, yeah, it's not affordable everywhere yet. I mean, the idea that you alluded to of us trying to get to mass scale to where we could get the costs way down, that's in our future. But in places like California, uh, New York, even places like Austin, that price point is, uh, is pretty attractive. Yeah, so let me just push you a little bit on the price point. I think as a business dis dis uh, decision, it's a really smart price point. I think it's, it's um, you know, you probably have a lot of early adopters. You've decided to build this beautiful high-end product to start. But in any reasonable measure of what a 352-square-foot structure should cost, it's it's a little pricey. So is there a vision in which this could, this approach could come to come down dramatically to where it's dramatically more affordable. Oh yeah, I mean we're essentially uh, following a roadster uh, slash black car service. Yeah. If you know you want to use those kind of analogies, and you know when we're at this low rate of a production, and when we're taking venture style capital on. You know, we don't really have the luxury to build big manufacturing facilities. And, you know, frankly, we're still figuring a lot of stuff out. And so really locking in that design, uh, we just don't kind of have the luxury of time and money to do that right now. So we decided to build a really premium product that will last 100 years. It will take a Category 4 hurricane. It will take almost any seismic uh, uh, zone in California. It'll take a snow load uh, in Telluride, you know, a very highly engineered top of the line kind of really, you know, the clo closest comp is probably something uh, like a Roadster. And I think yeah. they only made, what, 50 of those? You mean Tesla, a Tesla. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, it makes total sense. So I, I, that's what I thought you were going to say, and I'm glad you did. Um, if, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. 
Jeff, take us back to the origin story. And if you would, can you work in why your, your title on LinkedIn is Professor Dumpster? <laughs> yeah, it all fits together. So, you know, I, I started off very early in my career out in Silicon Valley uh, at IBM, at Ernst & Young's consulting group. And so when the uh, dot-com bubble burst, I guess I, I could say I burst in some sense as well and uh, ended up sleeping on my sister's couch for a while and then eventually going into academia. And uh, my, my academic story sort of uh, eclipses or dives, you might say, uh, about four years ago when I decided as an environmental science professor that I was going to try to live in about 1% the size of an average new American home. Uh, sell off everything in my 2,000-square-foot home for about a dollar an item, and then uh, try to be part of a new 1%. And, you know, as a professor, as you know, that, that 1% is not being at the top of the income bracket, but uh, trying to create 1% of waste um, and use 1% the energy of the average American home. And I thought, what better of a symbol of that than a uh, dumpster? So I convinced the university president uh, to let me essentially live on the edge of campus in a previously used 33-square-foot trash dumpster and turn it into a sustainable home and learn a lot about housing and small space uh, along the way. So part of that, at one point, one of my students suggested uh, that we create a sort of Bill Nye-esque character to go talk at schools and suggested the name uh, Professor Dumpster. Uh, I didn't really like it, but it kind of stuck. And so uh, I spent the next year in that dumpster, and that was literally, uh, literally where uh, Casita was born. Uh, wow. Was, the idea was born out of, out of that year-long social experiment. Wow. So 33 square feet, if it were eight feet long, it's four feet wide. Uh, that's yeah, so a, it was it was six by five and a half, wow. and I'm six foot one. Oh, so I I still have muscle memory in the middle of the night, and my girlfriend can verify this that I I turn diagonally in the middle of the night. I think it's just muscle memory of not being able to lie along one axis of the dumpster. Wow, could you get your girlfriend in that dumpster? Uh, she spent a limited amount of time there. I was going to uh, say. Let's just say if it was my place or her place, we always ended up staying at her place. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. So, yeah. And I spent about 270 nights in there. So we would have uh, other teachers would came come and, you know, spend a night, and then we, not with me in there, we gave them curriculum to go back to the classroom. We actually had the CEO of Couchsurfing, uh, came out from the Bay Area and couch surfed for a night uh, wow. in the dumpster. So you tend to get all kinds of uh, random ideas and random guests uh, when, when you do something like that. And so, you know, that I, I, I really think if I would have grown up in the architecture or design world uh, and not been so ignorant about all that, I probably would have never tried this because yeah. it, 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 it literally was probably more insane uh, to try to start this thing than, than actually even the living in the dumpster part. All right. So I got to work this into you. 
I also I can learn a lot on your LinkedIn. You you have a, a your publications there. This was my favorite. You wrote a paper called "Ball Lightning and Fireballs During Volcanic <laughs> Air Pollution." So, and I don't think that was with any irony. I think that was an academic paper, and and so yeah, it got yeah. published. It was a peer-reviewed journal. <laughs> yeah. So I guess what I'm wondering, Jeff, is how did you get from that? to housing and where what was the origin of casita itself you know it's not linear at all uh it if i've thought back and tried to draw any sort of line in it uh you know i i was interested in air quality and health and there were some massive unexplained sort of health of that we made some very tenuous connections uh, to Icelandic volcanic air pollution in that study. You know, it really just turned out that I was an academic, and, you know, one of the things in academia that you're rewarded for, some people will say you learn more and more about less and less until you kind of know everything about nothing. And a few of the last papers that I had written had gotten so sort of pedantic and so focused on things of such minutiae in some ways, I just said, man, I, I kind of need to mix it up a little bit and, uh, you know, tr try something a little bit more experimental. So came up with this idea, um, pitched it to my university president. I think they already knew I was a little bit crazy. Uh, and they said, all right, well, let's try it. And, you know, where Casita came from was was really looking at how my life had changed when I moved into that small of a space. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I only owned four or five shirts rather than 40 or 50. Mm -hmm. My commute went from 30 or 40 minutes to three or four minutes. I spent more time making the neighborhood and the spaces around me my living room rather than having a big living room. Um, and then I had a lot more disposable income, so to speak, uh, to spend on things, you know, whether it was paying down student debt or traveling or eating out. And I thought, okay, this micro living experiment, there, there, there's something to that. So why not design something uh, as a product, housing as a product that could really take advantage of that smaller footprint? And uh, that was really where the idea was born. And I just started telling folks about it. And eventually somebody said, well, why don't you quit your job and go try to raise some money and go for it? And that's what I did. So, Jeff, this is all, I mean, it's super interesting. I love this stuff. I wouldn't think it is obviously is something that would be at least readily venture backable, but you have succeeded in raising, if I can believe, Crunchbase around $12 million. Can you talk a little bit about how you turned this vision into something that you could bank on or that was investable? Yeah, I, you know, I think it was, uh, yeah, because first off, if you just want to take this from a traditional, somebody that's going to look at it from a venture perspective, and I didn't know any of this as well. Um, I, I, I didn't know what a cap table was until, you know, midway through our, our, our seed round. Um, I was just out pitching something that I, I really believed could 
solve a massive problem in the world, right? A base Maslow problem mm-hmm. of, you know, housing and shelter. And I, I had what I thought was a novel way to do that, going small, going into small slivers of land, and then long-term building out a, a real platform where people could move between them. If you were to look on a surface, a 25,000-pound piece of hardware in the slowest moving, oldest, most regulated industry, and on top of that, trying to do software and manufacturing it yourself, you know, if I would have known how crazy that was in retrospect, you know, I don't know if I would have given myself money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, I had a, a, a dream. We had a massive problem and a massive market to go after, and I, I found a few believers. Um, and, uh, you know, we've actually built something. I'm at my factory now looking out on the factory floor. You know, we're actually making these 25,000 pound pieces of hardware. And, you know, we, we can't share the news just yet, but, you know, this, this thing is going to go on in a very big way. Mm. Um, I just want to take one moment and tell our listeners what a cap table is because I hear this a lot. People don't know what it is. So cap table just refers to capitalization table, and it's just a table that shows who owns your company and typically includes you, the founders, uh, your, some of your employees, and your, and your investors. So, right. so, Jeff, you alluded to big news, but just can you just tell, it how, tell us more broadly how, how's it going? You started in April 2015. That's not too long ago. That's just three years, three and a half years ago. Three and a half years ago. Yep. How, how's it going? So uh, it's been a ride. I mean, uh, it you know we we've gone through. We raised a seed round, a bridge round, built a prototype and a beta, and we have now ten uh, units out in the world. I feel like we have things dialed in um, now to sort of ramp to the next level of production when we can make fifty or so uh, in a year. Um, and we've got about, I guess, 27 employees, and we have a lot of interest. Um, There's still a lot of things to figure out. This transition from basically being a home builder under a roof to, you know, a large-scale kind of Model 3 type of manufacturing base, you know, as we all know from what's happened at Tesla, it's not easy to do this with billions of dollars, um, it's, it, it's, it's very difficult to do this rolling out of a dumpster, uh, with sort of tens of millions. So a lot of challenges in, in, in front of us, but we're, we're alive. Uh, people love the product and, uh, you know, we've got a, a big future ahead of us. Uh, awesome. Well, it's great to hear. And, and Jeff, where are you living now? Do you get a bigger dumpster? Or <laughs> I actually have another dumpster, dumpster 2.0, out on the floor here that we're going to install some of our uh, technology stack into. Um, I I pay rent in or half rent in about a 400 square foot uh, studio in Brooklyn, and uh, when I'm here in Austin, I'm actually looking at the couch that I sleep on here. Ah. Um, you know, my investors don't tend to give me a lot of crap about living in a couch because they know my roots and what I used to sleep in. Uh, so this is a full climate controlled uh, six and a half foot couch. 
Well, you know, I love the frugality. That I, if I were an investor, I'd love to see you sleeping on the couch. <laughs> well, there's an extra one here right across from me. So, all right, if you I'll want to come. Do the next interview from the office late night. You're welcome. All right, beautiful. Well, Jeff, we're out of time. Thanks so much for making the time to join us and telling us about Casita. Yeah, hope to talk again soon. Take care. All right. So for more information, you can go to just casita.com. And just to remind you, it's casita with a K, K-A-S-I-T-A dot com. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.